Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award-winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. I, too, can picture myself standing there and blowing 40 shots at permit. A storm. They say this town is about to be lit up. You go to the Walmart parking lot, you kind of put your blinders on, you walk through it, you pretend like you don't see anything, you get whatever you need done. I sleep with my gorilla pod, son, in case some epic fishy shit happens in my dreams. Bent! Good morning, degenerate anglers, and welcome to Bent, the fishing podcast that the cast of Clerks would have been listening to at the quick stop. (laughs) Had podcasts existed in 1994. I'm Joe Cermelli. I'm Miles Nolte, and uh, and just hearing a reference to Clerks makes me well. I, I guess it makes me want to cover myself in flannel and go to a Tower Records. <laughs> oh, like, Tower Records oh. on South Street in Philly. R.I.P. Tower I Records. It. I, miss, I spent so much time <laughs> and, and money I didn't have there. Anyway, besides podcasts, do you know what else they didn't have at the Quick Stop in 1994? What's that? delicious black rifle coffee friendly reminder here that bent is presented by our buds of black rifle coffee and we are genuinely thankful for that because it means we get to fuel our recording sessions with high quality caffeine instead of you know that quick stop sludge crap (laughs) exactly and you can fuel your fishing and daily grind with the good stuff as well by heading to blackriflecoffee.com backslash meat eater. And when you do, enter the promo code meat eater and score yourself 20% off your entire order. What you want, Grizzly Adams? So, Joe, are you aware that this is our first official podcast of the fall season? I am. You are correct. September 22nd was the first day of fall. Um, yeah, I mean, dude, I'm already feeling it out here on the East Coast. The nights are noticeably cooler. Uh, the real thing, though, I recently helped my neighbor cover his pool, which is <laughs> kind of the final <laughs> reminder um, that, yeah, while great fall fishing looms, I guess, so does that long COVID winter. Oh, uh, yeah. Pools are really not a thing out here. I don't know a single person with them because well, really our There's like our five fall, days a year you can use it. Yeah. Our, our fall started last month. 
you know, that's when, when things got cool, which I, I, I don't mind. I look forward to it. I like the fall, but I know what's coming, right? And and right about this time with that knowledge sitting in my head, I'd, I'd like to be planning a trip someplace warm. You yeah. You know, like yeah. someplace warm and salty with boat drinks and, and big fish. Boat and drinks. like, that's... That's what I want to be thinking. It's not like it's not like I take those trips every year. It's not like I jet off to the southern hemisphere every year, but I I do like to imagine myself there. Right? And we don't get to do that cuz no one's going anywhere right now. But yep. thanks to all of you out there who keeps sending us these copious emails nominating your favorite fishy watering holes from across the globe. I can still kind of take a little mental vacation. I get to live vicariously through you. Which I appreciate. And we'll take what we can get. So I appreciate it too. Yeah. Yeah. Both Joe and I read all of these and, and sometimes we actually get to, you know, sail away with you like we do with this week's That's My Bar. Best goddamn bartender from Timbuktu to Portland, Maine. Or Portland, Oregon for that matter. This week's That's My Bar nomination comes to us from listener Spencer Foster. Spencer wrote, I'm an archaeologist who works in Belize during the summer. Every time I finish a dig season, I take a few days to vacation and fish on a small island called Kay Cocker. In 1961, a hurricane split this island in two, creating a channel known to the locals as The Split. This channel is a popular hangout for locals and tourists alike for swimming, diving, and fishing. Toward the center of the channel, Fishermen can hook into multiple species, including barracuda, snapper, parrotfish, jack, and even the odd cobia. Directly next to the split is the Lazy Lizard Bar and Grill, a beautiful little beachside oasis that serves cold belican, a local Belizean beer, and hot fried conch. As I'm throwing out cut sardines and squid, I can listen to the reggae tunes drifting out of the bar. If I get drained by the Caribbean sun, I can wander over and fuel up on calamari and a Coke while watching young locals free dive for lionfish using homemade spears. My visits coincide with the off season, so I get to enjoy this without swarms of tourists. The global pandemic prevented me from visiting the Lazy Lizard this summer, but I'm already looking forward to next year. Now, this nomination just has so much going for it. There's a little bit of history, like a personal anecdote, but most importantly, that vivid description. Yeah, man. This, it, it, that just, that <laughs> sold it for me. It, it takes me back to my honeymoon in the conch shack in Turks and Caicos, which we yeah. we ate at on day one and then every other day thereafter. Because <laughs> it, it was never it was just that mellow. There were like bonefish cruising around and like, conch a million different ways which is a food that i love so um oh, so good yeah dude it's it's i think we're all feeling that little bit of of uh bummed out about not getting to hit some of these joints this year because of covid but it'll be waiting for you man and i appreciate the the the, the comment about hitting it in the off season because I, yeah. you've probably been to a lot like i i've gotten to visit so many cool bars in my travels and because we're there fishing in the cold season or you know a different time of year it's not like peak tourism time I know what he's saying. Like, it's a different vibe when you're not there, when it is jam-packed with people. Or if it's jam-packed, it's only with the locals. It's a totally different experience. And I don't know about you, Joe, but personally, I've, I've never been to Belize. I haven't either. That is one of those places that I've read and heard so much about, like the culture and the people and the ecosystem and, you know, obviously how good the fishing is. That I've always wanted to go. And, you know, dude, I didn't have any plans to travel there in 2020. 
But the fact that I can't, yeah, that I'm actually barred from doing so just makes me want to go so much more. <laughs> and then we get this email and I'm reading it and I'm like momentarily transported out of my lockdown life. And I'm, I'm just for a minute, I'm not sitting in my home office, which is really just a plastic folding table in my bedroom, staring at this little screen. I'll stand in hip deep in the blue Caribbean with a rod in my hand and like some crusty salt on my shirt and like a sunburn <laughs> just starting to blossom on my arms. And I could almost taste that Belican and conch, even though I've never had a Belican, but I could imagine it. And I was, I was there for a minute. So Spencer, thank you for that like momentary vacation that I just got. Yes. It was, it was just it, in my mind. It was an incredible description. And I too can picture myself standing there and blowing 40 shots at permit the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> just got it. Just got to throw a live crab at him. It's amazing. Exactly. Um, all right, Spencer, we hope you get back to K Cocker soon. Uh, just remember when you do, and it's overrun with degenerate bent fans. The next time you go, you'll have only yourself to blame. And uh, for the rest of you who want to blow up one of your favorite bars and, and have all of us crawling all over it, please send us an email to bent at themeateater.com so we can continue building up this amazing segment of great bar recommendations. So while we all feel the pain of not being able to jet off to Belize right now to visit the Lazy Lizard, uh, I can tell you uh, you're free and clear to visit Diane's pop top in Pembine, Wisconsin. At least that you could. Is such a great <laughs> bar name. At least you could, as of my last visit there in late June. So you know. Back it up. Hold on. You got to drink in like a real live bar last uh -huh. summer. You went to a bar to drink. And uh -huh. we're, we're not talking about your back deck with like a home painted sign lit up with string lights and, and neon beer lights, right? Like well, no, a real I, bar. I have that too in my backyard. <laughs> But no, this was, a, this was a real bar, and it was the only real bar I drank in all of last summer. And I won't lie, man, it, I, I felt weird about it. However, the only people in the bar were the bartender and the guys I was with, right? I mean, you know, Diane's Papa Top wasn't exactly raging like Studio 54, um, but there was a sign behind the bar. You know those black signs that are like lit and then you use like the neon pastel markers over them to write the specials oh, yeah, of the day. They only exist in bars. That's right. the they, only place yes, that they're, they're yeah. like, the, whoever came up with that only sells to bars. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. So there was one of those in, in, in this bar and it said, due to COVID-19, we will be staying open because I'd rather be drunk when the world ends. <laughs> Yeah. So I, I had no idea what the specials were, yes. but I got that message loud and clear. And I was like, you know what? Okay, give me a PBR. Give me a PBR. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I made a new friend while I was up there, and you're about to learn all about him in our segment dedicated to letting professional guides and captains vent about stupid things their clients do. This, my friends, is Smooth Moves. Why did you do that? Why? Why did you do that, Karen? Oh, my God. Joining us today on Smooth Moves, my good buddy, Tim Landwehr, owner of Tightline's Fly Fishing Company in northern Wisconsin. What's going on, brother? Not much. How are you doing, man? Good I am good, man. I miss you. And uh, having spent a few days sharing stories with Tim, um, I know this is going to be a good smooth move. Remind us how long you've been a professional guide. Uh, since I was probably 18 years old. So I've been guiding part-time from 18 till now, and I'm 47. So it's been a couple of years now. It's okay. been a few. I was going to say, you don't look a day over 32, so. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of sun, man. A lot of sun. 
so you do a lot of smallmouth fishing, a lot of musky fishing, uh, and uh, you've seen some goofiness. So so hit us, man. Give us the WTF moment that comes to mind that just stopped you in your tracks. I know it's probably a hard decision. <laughs> There's a lot of those moments, Joe. But I, I'd have to say, as a guide, you know, you have certain pieces of water that you go down that may have some dangers and things on it. And we have one specific little back channel that we fish all the time. And over the course of about four years, a paper hornet's wasp nest is built on it. And it is massive. It's like the three foot long draping from the tree hornets on it. But every time I sneak through this, you have to tell your customers, like, ladies and gentlemen, grab a seat. I'm going to sneak through this. You point out the hornet's nest. You point this out. <laughs> I mean, like, like a lot. Like that's a paper hornet's nest. And, you know, when people are excited about fishing, they see greasy water. They start to see through the guide's eyes. They start to see a spot that they have to fish. And this particular day, the guy just, I mean, he just kept casting, kept casting. And we see this greasy slick of water and the dude stands up and I can see him stand up and line up. And before the words get out of my mouth, he sends a rope through that hornet's nest. I mean, like the the double haul, like the full, oh, dude. And immediately I watched it wrap around the entire nest. Like it wasn't going to disturb the nest. (laughs) And at this moment, it's like the holy shit moment of like, huh, I wonder what we're going to do now. Because we are just a hair, maybe 10 feet downstream from this hornet's nest. So I had to tell the guy, I'm like, okay, very calmly sit down (laughs) and pull my EpiPen out from the side hatch of my boat. So, so we get downstream and I have the guy rip off all of his fly line without, and I can see the hornet's nest wobbling up there with the current pulling the line. He pulls all of the fly line out and we just get downstream. And now we've got about another 50 yards of backing on top of the fly line. And I'm like, okay, you're going to have to pull it tight now. And he pulls it tight and he cuts the hornet's nest directly in half. (laughs) Fellas, there had to be, I don't know between a million bees and <laughs> and it was just crazy because you could see them all freaking out the bees freaking out and the guy's like i'm sorry i'm so sorry i'm so sorry <laughs> i had no words for him on the i'm sorry we get downstream and i could see like the massive bees coming closer to figure out where like the disturbance was and like i'm giving everybody like the critique like okay we all get out of the boat we're gonna have to get out of the boat somebody's got to jump in because like we're somebody's gonna go into anaphylactic shock if we don't but fortunately, the bees were disoriented and they dispersed. But that was one of the most holy shit moments I've had because I had dodged that nest for years. Well, I was going to say, did you are did you also ruin a landmark? Because that's one of those things with guides. Like when you talk, like yeah, we, we we're just just downstream a hornet's nest. <laughs> it was. It was. <laughs> it was one of those things because if somebody fished that back channel, like you were going past hornet's nest and. And then I came back and told the fellows the story about it. And they're like, oh, man, that was a cool hornet's nest. <laughs> <laughs> I just got to jump in here, Tim, and give you credit on the like, okay, strip off the line very, yeah. very quickly. Like that could have gone really without without quick thinking that could have gone much, much, much worse than it did. And <gasps> and getting it getting enough scope out there that you could, you know, give it a yank without them finding right. you was a stroke of brilliance in a very tense moment. So like kudos to you, man. That's a good guy. Yeah, Cause move most right people there. I know would have just yanked it down in one shot and it would have been just, a, <laughs> just a <laughs> no shit scene. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, and and the fact that you got to him before he started his front cast, I mean, it was yeah, he, little, little, little quick applause. <laughs> thank you, thank you. He knew it, and and the thing is, I will say, Miles, though, like looking back on it, like I had played out that scenario in my head every time I went past that hornet's nest. Like somebody's gonna catch it, you know, <laughs> one of these it's guys gonna, gonna catch eventually. it. <laughs> You know, man, people think good guiding is is like all about just finding the fish, knowing where the fish are and what they're eating, but it's it's not. I think a good guide is the guy who like has a positive mental attitude all day because rest assured, like I'll be pissed off about something, and he's the guy that's like assuring me that my skills will come together and there's fish right around the bend. But that's just what I look for. Yeah, the, the, it's the cheerleader aspect, right? Like, yes. there's the cheerleader aspect. There's the the psychologist aspect, the counselor aspect, like a, a good guide. I can't remember who said it. Good guide is like a bartender and a counselor who can't prescribe meds. I don't know. Some some I butchered that quote, but it's something like that. Just finding the fish, though, for guides, that's truly bare minimum. That's like C minus level guiding if all you know is where the fish are. No, I'd agree. Really good guides do so much more. And I think Tim's instincts in that situation are the perfect example. Right, because like he's got that guy feeding out the line instead of letting the client just yank his way into anaphylactic shock, <laughs> you know, and and all the while he's still rowing the boat and piloting it and and thinking about four different things ahead. Like that's a good guide. That's that's managing to to do several different things at once. Like I, I give him a lot of props there, and and he's got solid instincts for sure. Just like. I mean, I think I think it's safe to say all good anglers trust their instincts. You agree with that? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Even though, like if they're mostly wrong, but like they they will just insist that uh, their instincts are spot on all the time. That's oh yeah. What yeah. We do. I'm not I'm not <laughs> saying our instincts are right, but like if you don't have confidence in what you believe and yourself as an angler, you're screwed. You're not catching shit. But like, when do you know? Like, how do you know when to trust your instincts or when to admit that your instincts are totally full of shit? Like, how do you know how to figure that out? I, I don't know. I just generally assume that 60% of my instincts are full of shit every time. <laughs> 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 but this question, uh, I, see, I see where you're going here. And this question of self-trust versus self-doubt, I think uh, it's an important one to us fisher folks. So Miles here is going to delve deeper into it in this week's Weekly Word. Webster's Dictionary defines fish as the word for this week is perseverate. I first learned this word from uh, an old girlfriend in the middle of the conversation where she was becoming an ex-girlfriend and was listing the personality traits she most hated about me. The common definition is to repeat something insistently or redundantly, but the word comes from psychology and yeah, that ex was a psych major. The word's clinical definition is the repetition of a particular response regardless of the absence or cessation of a stimulus. In other words, it's when we keep doing something long after that thing has stopped working. All right, so some of you are probably wondering what the hell ex-girlfriends and clinical psychology terms have to do with fishing, and that's a valid question. But I think this word, and a similar one with a slightly different meaning, get at one of the central questions we all face as anglers. The Latin roots of perseverate are per, meaning through, and severus, meaning strict or earnest. These are also the roots of another word that might be more familiar, persevere, which means to persist steadfastly in pursuit of an undertaking, task, journey, or goal, even if hindered by difficulty, distraction, obstacles, or discouragement. Perseverating is bad. Persevering 
is good, but how do we identify the line that separates the two? Anybody who spent any significant time fishing knows this dilemma. You, you have an idea of what should work. Like say uh, a cold front just pushed through and you know, you just know the fish are going to be sluggish. So you work finesse tactics, slow and deep, but it ain't happening. What do you do? Do you switch it up? Go with something you have less confidence in or just keep pushing what you think should work and have confidence that if a fish is going to bite anything at all, it's what you're doing. All good anglers persevere. We keep casting, keep working patterns and systems that we think should catch fish. But at what point does persevering turn into perseverating? When are we being patient and when are we just repeating the same action and hoping for a different result? You know that whole definition of insanity thing. Really, this etymological distinction is the timeless and central question of fishing. Should I change spots, change baits, change retrieves, or keep grinding it out, trust my first instinct, and wait for the bite to turn on? I can't answer that question for you, but I do think that knowing the difference between perseverating and persevering separates the good anglers from the great ones. And on that note, you have officially persevered through the first half of our show, which brings us to the part where we pump you full of info on recent fish-related happenings so you sound more hip to the scene at the Bait Shack. Let's roll out some fish news. Fish news! That escalated quickly. Our top story this week, though not actually part of fish news proper, Meat Eater Season 9 Part 1 is now streaming on Netflix. Yes. Yes, it is. If you can't get out and fish this weekend, which I'm sorry for you, but you got an option. You can binge your way through some fresh Meat Eater episodes. And for all of you out there who completely lack self-control, we are exercising it for you this season. Part 2 of season nine will come out early next year. So just consider this like our civic duty. It's, it's like portion control for media. You can't have the big gulp. You just get like the mini can. Well, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure I'll be fishing this weekend. I'm going to be too busy sulking and rehashing in my head how I lost news last week. I mean, you're still up, man. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why you'd be sulking over still being ahead all time. <laughs> I've appealed this to the High Court of Meat Eater, just so you know. Good luck with that. Appeal, yeah, I know. It's it's going to get ugly. It's going to cost me a lot of money. But uh, <laughs> apparently not enough Radio Shack gift cards to fill. But that's okay, because I'm feeling pretty good this week. As a reminder, uh, Miles and I have no idea which news stories related to fish and fishing the other guy has found. This is a competition, and it is judged at the end by our podcast engineer, Phil Taylor. Okay. All so, hail Phil. All hail Phil. Phil is the man. Uh, and this is a risky move for me because I get to lead off and I'm, I'm going to. Joe's going first. What do you got, man? Bring I gotta the heat. Come, I got to come in a little somber, though. So we're going to kick this mm. off with a tragic tale that makes my blood positively boil. This comes to us from USA Today. Headline, fans rally behind pro bass angler after robbery. A pro bass angler from Kentucky was robbed of more than $15,000 worth of gear after arriving in Texas for a weekend tournament. But Matt Robertson still competed after receiving an overwhelming show of support. Now, 
Other sources on this story say that the value of the goods was closer to $20,000, okay? Robertson arrived in Jasper, Texas last week in advance of the Bassmaster Central Open on Sam Rayburn Reservoir. His truck was picked clean, however, during his wife's visit to a nearby Walmart. According to Robertson, there was 11 years worth of accumulated gear in that truck. And he told Bassmaster, I had everything in big totes, including all my tools, jack, tire, iron, anything I might need in case of an emergency. They unloaded everything and they left my spare tire. That is, that's my nightmare. Honestly, like I, I, I do have nightmares about that because if, if someone got a hold of, you know, your stash of fishing gear, some, you, can, you can replace the stuff that you can buy, but some of that's irreplaceable, man. Like you can't get it back. So I'm going to get to my fix for that in a little bit, okay? But I agreed totally. That is also my biggest nightmare. And the story goes on to say that Robertson was flooded with offers of money, but he says, you know, hey, I know people work hard for their money, so the dude refused to take it, which I kind of respect that. Absolutely. Um, But it goes on to say that, however, Robertson reluctantly accepted a tackle store gift card from a fellow pro who was not scheduled to fish the open, And he used that to buy just enough gear to fish the three-day tournament. Now, so so many things, right? First, the person who did this, scum of the earth, you go straight to hell. Yep. That's number one. Uh, But two, I don't feel like this could have been random, right? There was a photo in the article showing some of the tackle he lost. And it was a lot, man. I mean, this wasn't like... You think like, this was a hit? Like an orchestrated hit? Oh, I think there, there's no way that whoever did this didn't know exactly what was in that truck. Because this isn't like a break the window and steal the iPod deal. You know what I'm saying? And I assumed that maybe this was a late night run to Walmart. But nay, this was broad daylight. And there were plenty of other people in the parking lot. And like nobody thought something was weird there. That unload had to take time, right? Yeah, I mean, weird stuff happens in the Walmart parking lot all the time. Let's well, be yeah. honest. You know, you go to the Walmart <laughs> parking lot, you kind of put your blinders on, you walk through it, you pretend like you don't see anything, you get whatever you need there, done. There's whole websites devoted to the weird things that happen at Walmart. Last exactly. time I was out at Walmart, I saw a dude jump out of his truck and crack a yingling on his way in, like you're opening a beer to go. <laughs> <laughs> Refreshing. You, you, you need to be well hydrated for that Walmart run. I get it. But... All, all the sources of this story feature um, security cam photos of a white Chevy Tahoe believed to be the perps caught on tape, um, and the public is being asked to keep a lookout for it. But I don't even fully understand that, because in a couple of those shots, like, I can damn near read the entire license plate. So huh. I, I hope that, you know, the local SWAT team is suiting up right now, because that's what I want. You know, while all theft is obviously low... I, I just find the stealing of fishing gear extremely low. Like, I cringe when I see those posts pop up on forums and on social media. Like, yep. somebody jacked my tackle bag out of my truck. Oh, like yeah. that, just, oh. that just burns me. It's, I'm, yeah, I, I think every few years it seems like someone decides it's going to be a good idea to break into all the guide rigs around yep. here because they know where they're going to be, right? Yep. And they know that there's usually some cash for the shuttle driver in there and there's usually some gear but it is vigilante justice. And that's what keeps it from being anything that happens often, honestly, because the whole community of anglers around here finds out who it is because 
towns aren't that big yep. and bad things happen to them that generally have nothing to do with the police. Right. So, and, well, and I mean, they're trying to sell it. So what happens? It usually pops up for sale somewhere and that's how yeah. they nail them, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, to get back to your, your fear of, of having your gear stolen, just a final note, because you'll appreciate this. Uh, the day we had our security system installed here at the house, my wife was unavailable to weigh in on sensor placement. And it's a scam anyway, right? Because the, 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 these services advertise like cheap monthly, 50 bucks a month, secure your house. Yeah, but then you find out the package only comes with four free sensors. So it's like pick the four most likely places someone will break in or you up the bill a couple grand and arm every possible entry point, right? So I bought a handful of extra sensors that day and I put every single one in the garage. <laughs> so we've since upgraded the home in its entirety, right? Uh, but at the outset, there were like many weak points in the part where my family sleeps, but the garage was Fort Knox, dude. <laughs> and my wife was pissed when she I came home she that was. day. She was pissed. <laughs> but I had a valid argument, right? And this is, I'm not even kidding. Thanks to something I saw on CSI, which taught me nobody ever expects a locked door behind a locked door. So in other words, people will break into a, a garage assuming the door inside the garage from the house to the garage is unlocked. And that stuck yeah. with me. Yeah. And now mine is mine is is always locked, that door. But I was like, hey, you know, if I was breaking into this place, I'd come in through the garage. And she kind of conceded, but not really. She knew exactly what I was doing. So there you go. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I like that you had that rationale ready to go. Like, oh, no, no, no. It's not about my gear, honey. It's It's science. I learned it from CSI. <laughs> Hold on. I appreciate that very much. And, you know, I actually, this is this is true, until I got married to my wife, I don't think I ever lived in a house where we locked the doors. Uh, it's just the Northeast way, man. I love that Mayberry idea, and I've visited a lot of places where it's like that. I am, I am, it's just ingrained. Like, I'm just a nut jobber. Like, I don't keep anything of value in my truck. Like, no, I, I'm, I, I'm not getting on. I think it makes sense. Like, I, it's just, so... To contextualize this, this isn't like an idealistic thing for me. It was, I grew up in a house where you couldn't lock the doors because everything was screened in. So all you had to do was just punch through the screen and you were in. So it didn't really matter. <laughs> Our house got broken into many times when I was a kid, but we just couldn't lock it. it was a design well, problem. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome you, to the tropics. You lived in a house. Oh, uh, this is in Hawaii. <laughs> yeah, this is where I grew up in Hawaii. Like literally, oh. the, the, we had a giant screened in porch. You, there's no way to secure that. Like you just couldn't do it. Wow, and then, that is a major design flaw. And then in college, I lived in this 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 house where I think we just lost the keys within the first week, mm -hmm. and then no one even bothered. It was just like whatever. That was and, every. And we got that broken was, into there too. That was every. But we also house. we also had several of the guys on the couch, so there was usually an alarm system there because somebody was on the couch pretty much twenty four hours a day. But still, we got broken into there. And then after that, I don't know, man. I just kind of got out of the habit of it. I never did it. But but I married a woman who who had just come from New York, and now it is like yep. locked up all the time. I anyway, like her this way. Is, I this feel has better. Nothing to do with fishing. I, I ventured far and wide. I'm sorry about that. But uh, I also don't have a great segue to get from. I was like trying to buy some time for a segue, and, and I don't exactly know how to get there. <laughs> Apparently, Phil counts the segues because my first one sucked last week, and then I lost. So your turn. I'm just gonna say that that locking the door on a house that even though I'm getting used to it now is, is outside of my comfort zone. And for this, 
This first story, I also went far, far outside of my personal comfort zone into a strange alien land that seems primarily populated by teenagers and and maybe tweens. Uh, That's right. (laughs) I I wandered into the land of TikTok. Oh, man. Isn't that against the law now? You shouldn't say that publicly. (laughs) I I mean, (laughs) I did. It's true. I went there. I will also admit it was not my first foray into into TikTok land. Uh, my goddaughter a couple years ago showed it to me, mm-hmm. but at that time, I think she was like ten. And at that time, from what I could tell, she just used it to learn and practice dances. So I just didn't pay any attention. I was like, "Oh, cool, yeah, take your dancing, whatever." I, I don't know what this I, app is. I fancy myself pretty up on like modern media, but that's one where I draw the line of the old man. Like, I don't know what the hell that is. And you're telling me what your kids are doing? Some dances. Tick, I don't know. That's that cute. Tick, that god. Damn Tic Tac app, you kids. I don't know. I don't know what to do. Yeah. I don't get it. Uh, again, all I know is it used to be for dancing, but apparently it's evolved because I hear now it's a national security threat. But also yeah. this week, I learned that one can find some strange and obscure fish news in the swirling cosmos of TikTok. I'm very curious. This is interesting. Yeah. You're also giving away your sources. So, you know. <laughs> I don't think it's going to be a regular uh, well that I draw from. <laughs> Lacey Scott. A sculptor by trade with a large TikTok following shared a story about rehabilitating a goldfish named Monstro this summer. And, you know, in case somehow you missed this, here's a little recap. In April, someone turned an unwanted 10-year-old goldfish into a pet store that Lacey frequents. The fish was in rough shape, barely able to swim and developing lesions on his belly from just laying there on the gravel motionless. Pretty much everyone in the story, except Lacey, was just waiting for this old, decrepit pet fish to die. But not Lacey, no. She took him home and set up a, quote, hospital tank where she worked on rehabilitating him. Several months later, not only was he eating, swimming, and lesion-free, but he grew substantially, and his color changed from jet black to this gorgeous, vibrant orange. And so Lacey posted a story to her account And I got to say, it feels like a collaboration between the Humane Society and Children's International. We get to see (laughs) Monstro's metamorphosis from a dejected, dark, solitary abuse case to a stunning, colorful fish twirling in a big, clean tank among the company of other fish, all set to inspirational piano music. And if anybody is looking for a textbook definition of pathos, just check out this video because you got it. Seven and a half million people watched uh, Lacey's monstro story. Oh, uh, you know, you know what that means, right? She's going to be the next pit bulls and paroles. She'll have a she'll have an Animal Planet show, She's the goldfish rehabilitator. Done. And I mean, look, I get it. We all need a little good media right now, right? Like, I mean, hell, that's that's part of the DNA of this show. But a goldfish? I mean, really? Uh, what's the take? So, uh, congratulations. Me, I'm, I'm there. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> And let me let me be clear here, though. I'm not throwing shade at anybody in the story, especially not Lacey or the pet store or even the original owner. In fact, they all get props from me because they didn't do what millions of other goldfish owners do when they're tired of the fish that their kid won at the fair. You know, the one they assumed would be dead in a week, but somehow it ended up surviving for over a decade, and now the kid's grown up and gone, and what the hell are they going to do with the stupid goldfish? They don't want to kill their kid's pet, but they don't want to take care of it either, so you know they just set it free in a local pond. Let it go back to nature, or whatever. 
those are the people that I would like to publicly shame right now. Yeah. You people, you're the problem because goldfish are barely natural. In fact, here's something we should all know. Invasive goldfish are a major problem worldwide, spreading bacteria and disease and competing with native wild fish. So listen up. If you can't be bothered to care for your pet fish, take responsibility for your actions and kill it quickly. Mm -hmm. Setting the fish free in your local pond or even flushing it down the toilet will result in one of two outcomes. Either that fish will die a slow, painful death or it will find a home in a local ecosystem and mess things up. Goldfish are carp. And as you've probably heard, carp are wreaking havoc across North American fisheries. Goldfish are no different from their hated cousins just because they've been selectively bred for the past 2,000 years to be pretty. Getting rid of goldfish once they've gained a foothold in a waterway is nearly impossible. They are impervious to electroshocking. So the only way to get them out is to poison every fish in the system and start over. Washington, Texas, Minnesota, California, Alaska, Nevada, and Colorado, among other states, are dealing with major goldfish outbreaks. And this isn't just an American problem. Canada, the UK, Australia, they're all fighting the goldfish hordes. So, Monstro might make for a touching TikTok story, but don't be fooled. He is an ecological time bomb just waiting to be unleashed. <laughs> O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild. But searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app 
on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. So, so I loved the goldfish game at the old uh, the old carnivals there, state so fairs I. back in the day. Yeah. I, I won two one year. Uh, my mom kind of adopted them and named them Jack and Diane, and they lived on a. <laughs> they lived. They lived little in ditty. a. Yep, little ditty. Uh, big melon camp fan. My mom, and uh, they lived in a fishbowl in our kitchen. Jack only survived for about two years. Diane lived thirteen in a yeah. fishbowl with no filter. Yep. I mean, they, they can are live forever, man. Much. They are much much tougher fish. Than, than people realize. And I don't have anywhere around here that has a population of them. I know this happens. I know it's a problem. I know it's a thing. Um, every once in a great while, though, I'll bump into a, you know, a few dudes like couldn't find live shiner, so they go buy a bag of goldfish. Oh. And uh, no justification here, but, I mean, that orange pickerel, chain pickerel, dude, a, a big orange goldfish hanging I'm under sure a bobber. I'm sure it works, but crushed. that's not... No, it's not cool. Not, it's not cool. We cannot, you can't, we cannot endorse this. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm not endorsing it at all. I've I've seen it, but uh, I don't have anywhere overrun with goldfish. Though I've had aquariums my whole life, and I'll, ne- I'll never forget this. As soon as you started telling the story, it took me right back here. I stopped at the big pet mart here one time years ago. I forget what I was buying, but this this mother and this son who was I don't know ten or eleven, they literally come running in like the house is on fire with a Tupperware container with a goldfish that is flipped over, and they're, like, screaming for someone to help them. They're like, please, someone, please. And, like, you know, it's a poor 14-year-old kid working the aquarium section. He's like, um, ma'am, I – like, it was dead. It was dead as shit. Get the they, paddles. But, dude, it was, like, it was like their dog just got hit by a car. It was yeah. like – they're like, please do something. I'm like – I was like, dude, $1.99, buy another one. You know what yeah. I mean? Oh. Well, I, I had a goldfish that lived for a, a similar amount of time, but I didn't realize what I was holding on to, and we didn't flush it till it was dead. So I, st- I don't have to, you know, look back in shame. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, this next story, we're going to talk about a fish that uh, not even the mighty Lacey could revive. Mm, okay. Good one. This this is a funky one. Okay, and this one caught my eye. This is from the UK's Guardian headline, King's Trophy Found Preserved in Centuries-Old Danish Shipwreck. Oh, man, I almost did this one. I am oh, so glad I didn't. Good on me. So this is this is kind of cool. I appreciate this. It's a short one, but I appreciate it. Uh, a two-meter-long sturgeon, and for us Americans, that's nearly seven feet, a species today near extinction has been found preserved in the pantry of a 500-year-old Danish royal shipwreck in the Baltic Sea. There's a quote here. It says, During archaeological excavations in 2019, a wooden barrel submerged inside the shipwreck revealed the almost complete and well-preserved remains of a sturgeon fish. Archaeologists from Lund University in Sweden wrote in a recent article in the Journal of Archaeological Science. Uh, And the discovery was possible thanks to special characteristics of the Baltic, a semi-closed sea with low oxygen levels. So apparently, as I understand it, um, aside from that low salinity, there's a number of factors that make the Baltic excellent at preservation, including a clay bottom. Apparently, a clay bottom does a Mm -hmm. much better job of preserving. So 
This boat belonged to King Hans, and the story says Hans sailed to Sweden in 1495 on his best vessel, the Gribshunden, the most imposing warship in the region, with the aim of restoring a union of the three Scandinavian countries under his crown. And uh, this says, we interpret the fish not so much as a gift, but as a prestige display, said Brendan Foley of Lund University. But the ship sank on its way. King Hans lived. But how much you want to bet he was like, holy shit, tell me someone got the sturgeon off the boat. You know what I'm well, saying? This is the part of that story that I, I was left <laughs> lacking on. Like, the, the ship sank. King Hans survived. How did he survive? What happened? I, don't, I wanted that I, part of the story. And the, it's not there. I looked for it. It's not now, there. he got off on the lifeboat, but the sturgeon went down and like someone went to the guillotine <laughs> or whatever over that. And I, I just find this really funny uh, because what struck me is they believe that the fish was a show of prestige, which even yeah. though it was salted in the pantry, it's really no different than taxidermy now, right? Like how much you want to bet the whole voyage, the servants were like, sire, uh, should we cook the large sturgeon tonight? And King Hans was like, no, no, not until King Henrik and Lord Jurgen get a look at that some bitch. Hey, <laughs> never gonna believe that shit. It's like me as a little kid. I always had a frozen something in the freezer, or I'd have yeah. some poor bass or catfish roasting in a cooler because my dad had to see it, and then my uncle had to see it, and then we had to drive it over for my grandpa to see. So King Hans, I understand you. I get it. And I thought that was I thought that was pretty cool. It was a great story, and and part of what I liked about it was was that it showed how they, they learn more about the range of the Atlantic sturgeon yeah. from finding that. And because that that species is pretty much gone at this point. We, we, yep. We've done a really good job of destroying it. But it was it's some of the only evidence they have that in those waters over in that part of the Atlantic, they used to apparently be swimming around. And yep. no one's seen them there for a very long time. So I, I thought that was a great, great choice, Joe. It was yeah. a, it was a good story. My, my only the only thing they, they have a picture, I guess, from a dive cam underwater. But like, I can't really, it's a very hazy picture. Like you see the edge of the barrel, but I'm not clearly seeing the fish unless you found a different source than I did. No, I didn't see it. I would like to really get a good look at it, you know? But again, sturgeon, kind of like we we talked about, I think last week, cartilaginous fish, not not so much bony. Right. They don't preserve that well. Makes sense. I don't know. I'm sure it would have been delicious. I I know that. Brined for that long? You know, we, I just want to point out that I think one thing we do well on this show, at least this segment, is we draw from a diversity of sources. We've got USA Today, we've got The Guardian, we've got TikTok, and now we're going to be, uh, we're going to be pulling something from a very different source. Uh, and this is, you know, once again, from a scientific journal, we really, we really cover the gamut. And, you know, I think there are very few things that just about everyone can agree upon. Okay. But one of those things is that fish are slimy. They just yes. are. And all you out there, do a quick Google image search for Fish Flop Friday and thank me later. Speaking of <laughs> fish being slimy, it's pretty common knowledge among anglers anyway that fish have a layer of mucus on their skin. That mucus layer is important. So if you're planning to release a fish, try to avoid scraping it off. Don't handle the fish more than necessary. Use rubber nets if you can. Don't drag the fish up on the grass or rocks or sand or the deck of a boat. Keeping that mucosal layer intact helps protect fish from bacteria and viruses. And I know some of you out there are saying, yeah, yeah, enough with the fish handling 101. We know all this. Like people have been telling us this for years. What's the point? Well, ever notice that it's not just fish? 
that are slippery, just about everything that lives underwater has that similar slippery feel, be it plant or animal. And that's not an accident. It's an evolutionary trait. That mucus layer does more than ward off infection. It also reduces friction. You ever try okay. running in water? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hard. So, that's because so fish don't get chub rub is what you're telling me. <laughs> they, well, because of the, the, the mucosal slime. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's what okay. I'm saying. <laughs> uh, and, I and, threw, and I threw him off with the chub rub. You totally threw that? me off. You totally, <laughs> you totally got in my head there. Uh, all right. Objects moving through water create far more drag and friction than those moving through air. So it makes sense that anything living in water would have evolved some way of reducing that drag. Both seaweed and fish have little pockets in their skin, and those pockets are reservoirs for mucus. Those reservoirs maintain the outer slime layer, both helping to prevent infection and creating a more slippery surface so that fish can pass through water more easily and plants don't get whipped around as violently by waves or current. Okay, I'm with you. Yeah. As you're well aware, Joe, I am fascinated by bioengineering, that is, borrowing design principles honed through eons of natural selection and applying them to modern technology to make it more efficient and, you know, natural. Yeah, it says exactly what you just said in your Instagram bio. All the time. But I'm, I'm all about it. <laughs> and so ships, right, especially those, those huge long-distance cargo ships, they mm -hmm. lose a tremendous amount of energy to fluid friction. So I found oh. an article published last week in the journal Physics of Fluid. You know, we got The Guardian, I, we got TikTok, yeah. we got Physics of Fluid. And that it explains how ships' hulls might be redesigned to mimic fish and seaweed skin in order to make them up to 20% more efficient. And it also broke down the exact physics of how that works, and I'm not even going to try to explain that because I, I have no idea what I read. I don't understand it. But I do like the idea of redesigning cargo ship hulls to act more like fish skin. In theory, the hulls would be covered in small cavities that are constantly supplied with a natural non-toxic lubricant, maintaining a slippery surface and significantly diminishing the ship's fuel consumption. So just remember, kids, wet your hands before you touch the boat because you don't want to pull off the slime layer. So I, I, I've never surfed, but you're from Hawaii, so I assumed you have. Yes. Is this like sex wax for your board? No, no, that's the opposite. So what you wax a board in order to make it stickier so that when you, you, you wax the top of your board so that when you stand up, you get some friction and something to grip on. You oh, don't, you don't want, want wax you don't on wax the bottom. The bottom. Oh, that's no. why my boogie. That's why my boogie boards never went anywhere when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, you're doing it. You're definitely doing that wrong. That's the okay. Opposite forget I said of all that. Sex wax. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> and you know, we got a little extra nugget of knowledge in there for all of those folks who don't know anything about surf and surfboards. Uh, we'll cover those topics in another episode of Fish News. In the meantime, we're uh, waiting with bated breath to see who Phil will choose for this week's winner. And as soon as Phil is done declaring a victor, we are going to kick over to a new segment called Sagely Wisdom with River Horse. It's going to take you away from the hustle and bustle of life for a little while. You will forget about the COVIDs and just mellow out, man, we promise. Let's be honest, it sounded a little try-hard, but Miles Nolte is the winner this week. I don't think anybody asked for his goldfish manifesto, but he provided it anyway. So, extra credit given where extra credit is due. 
If anyone is wondering what criteria I use to determine the winner every week, it's the same criteria that the judges used to determine no vacancy the winner of the Battle of the Bands at the end of School of Rock. Hey now, this is River Horse coming to you from the deep, deep south with a little sagely wisdom. Enjoy. Have you ever stopped to wonder about water, the miracle of it all, or the fact that it's even here on this earth? The average drop of water is aloft in the sky for ten days or more, making a journey around the globe. How far has it traveled in its lifetime? Perhaps it was a shimmering turquoise reef in the Caribbean, or even a lonely glacial alpine lake before it found its way to you. Most people run inside when it rains. Not me. I love it. Here's a story about the beauty of rainstorms, and hopefully, the next time you're in one, you'll stand there joyously and flat-out revel in it, my brothers and sisters. This is called Cloudburst. A storm. They say this town is about to be lit up. Empty roads. Far and wide, they bellied up and tucked themselves away in cookie-cutter neighborhood mansions. There is hand-wringing in front of flat screens alongside grave concern that the least land rovers will need to go to the car wash again for a fresh wax and polish. I've run for it as well. Straight for the water. I'm in the canoe. On a lake. I live for rain. The first tendrils of wind lilt in. Nimbus, ever dark and undulating like boiling kettle water, envelop every scrap of horizon. I feel the subtle brevity of warmth in the air swimming upward, exchanged for far more bearable cool. And then... The first few untethered, unmoored drops, bigger than you might think and surreal in the way they sideslip at an angle from the skies in lieu of running straight down, same as a river, which is simply water in the act of falling to other places, same as us sometimes. I forgo pulling the hood over my hair. I am much more a fan of immersing myself in it all. Native Americans have always felt rains to be signs of change. This is true. Change your stars? No. Mine are heady and bleeding fruit these days. More so holding hopes aloft that I can keep this ship ever steady at the helm and savor it. All of us have seen tumult and train wrecks along the way, so if and when days are sweeter than sweet, appreciate them and hold your breath. It's on the loose now. The whole sky is redlining. Buckets upon buckets pour down and it feels so good to stand and arc casts out. So many exploding droplets are blooming to and fro that it appears as if every damn fish in the world is rising. What else in simple nature feels this sensual and alluring? so unquestionably all-encompassing and soulful. 
Who is the fool that invented the roof? And why is the rest of the world under them instead of being out here? On with the headlamp. I'm going to fish on through the night and ride the hips of this storm until she leaves. And afterward, from a bedroll in the back of the truck, looking up at the stars, I'll be watching the weather, wanton with desire for endless lifetimes of rain. All right, so, do you know what River Horse is? Uh, I'm a little afraid to ask, but tell me. (laughs) Tell me. He's the Enya of fishing. (laughs) He's the entire collection of Time Life Pure Mood CDs for anglers, dude. My house could be on fire, burning, and if I had River Horse talking in my ear, I'd be like, this is fine. Yeah. This is all, it's all all good. good. Because we lean on the funny and the humor at Bent so much, but his segment just reminds me of one of those stress apps, which are very popular right now because there's commercials on TV all the time that tell you to just stop what you're doing and (laughs) listen to the sound of a waterfall for 30 seconds. So I look, I, this was our first one from River Horse. I appreciated it. I hope you guys did and appreciated that reset. And, um, I really hope we hear from him more often, man. Man, so do I. I I freaking love that dude. And it's it's not just his voice, but that guy crafts words as as well as anybody that's writing about fishing in my opinion. Oh, he's brilliant. I I I I don't I will never be able to write like River Horse. No can. one. No one that I know of can. So I I hope he's on a bunch more too because I I cannot think of a better person to have speaking calmly into my ear holes as we navigate the global <laughs> dumpster fire of 2020. <laughs> Uh, anyway, and, uh, and switching from soothing dulcet tones to what I consider to be nails on a chalkboard, we're about to check in with our barely tolerable correspondent, Lance V. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Lance is back, ladies and gentlemen, to bring us his own version of, uh, wisdom. Sagely. Totally sage, bro. bro. (laughs) Telling you how to win in internet fishing. And I'm sure this will inspire a whole new deluge of hate mail in the bent inbox that we have to read. Bring it. From the land, to the boat, to the lake, to the sea, f***ing up the internet with your boy, Landry! Yo, your boy Lance V here again, dropping all the knowledge on how to be a true internet angler, not just some poser with a stiff rod and a Wi-Fi connection. This week, I'm going to teach you how to get the best fish photos to post online. Okay, so you caught a nice fish. Good for you. It's probably half the size of my smallest fish ever, but hey, we all start somewhere. Now, don't just take a couple of pictures and let it go. Let it go, let it go. Hashtag frozen. This may be the best fish you ever fondle. Don't waste the opportunity by getting all sappy and looking like a tool. Think about the future. Think about the gram. Here are the top six tips to help you get the most out of that fish. Numero uno, portable studio. I shouldn't even have to say this, but if you've got a gorilla pod to hold your cell phone, right? I sleep with my gorilla pod, son, in case some epic fishy shit happens in my dreams. It's as critical as your fishing rod. Selfie mode, burst, 10 second timer. Don't even come at me with the three second timer bullshit. 
You cannot craft the perfect pose in three seconds unless you're a member of the Guggen Squad. Hashtag skills for days. So now, let's assume you actually caught something. Numero dos. Switch it up. Show for that fish around the lake like you're an Uber driver on a meth binge. At each new spot, put on a fresh outfit and grab a round of picks. Run through your tackle box, pull out all your most expensive baits from your favorite brand partners, and then play a game I like to call Pin the Lore on the Hog Face. With the right plan and execution, you can turn one hog into 20 and spread your greatness out for years to come. Oh, and by the way, you need 20 pairs of sunglasses because nobody wears the same pair longer than half a season. Numero Trace. Spray ampersand pray. Spend at least 15 minutes taking pictures of the fish out of water. Don't listen to all that environmental bullshit about keeping them wet. Fish breathe oxygen just like you, me, and John B. There's plenty of oxygen in the air. Hashtag science. Numero quattro. Act like you've been there. Only idiots and softball dads smile for the camera. Even if that fish is a PB, I'm going to wear a look on my face like, here's what a decent one looks like for your reference, suckas. Numero five. Brim up, shades on, mask off. I'm not losing the sick lids or Gucci shades. Obviously, if I'm wearing them and you can clearly see the logos, I'm sponsored by them or we're in heavy negotiations regarding sponsorship. Meetings and calls and shit are happening. But if you can't see my face because there's a dope-ass insane clown posse buff covering my grill, how is everyone going to know that I'm the one holding the hog? First, I tilt my flat brim up just enough. But make sure the logo is still showing, Ivy. Shades are for your protection because without them, I could see right through you. Also, shave because beards are for f-ing hippies. Hashtag modeling tips. Numero six. Kama Sutra, that beast. Sure, we all know the basic gripping grip pose, and it's a classic for a reason wide angle, long arms, big fish. But don't be afraid to mix it up. Hold it over your head like Simba, cradle it in front of your junk, lay it down on the deck and spoon it. Get creative and you might just turn into a legend, like the dude who invented the fish bra. Props to you, homie, for real. Hashtag genius. We'll worry about how and when to use Photoshop later. Most because I haven't gotten the pirated copy of the program my boy at Call of Dookie said he's securing. But first, you gotta get the raw material. And that all starts with a dope photo. Don't waste a big fish, or in your case, any fish, by not getting the right picks. If you're not going to get good shots, why even bother going fishing? That's it for me, Lance V. Sorry you had to listen to the rest of this dumbass show just to get my moment of shine. If you can't listen to this shit anymore, you need to go peep the Guggen Squad on YouTube. Get with their program now before I join their team and take it over. Just messing, Googs. Mad love. Don't y'all ever answer any emails? Man, to be young and have the luxury of taking 400 frames of one fish to nail that perfect shot. Isn't what the kids are doing these days, what the lances of the world Keep them dry. I Keep them dry, everyone. <laughs> I vividly remember taking film to the drugstore. And most of the roll on the disposable Kodak point-and-shoot camera was empty. But I couldn't wait the three months or whatever it would take to fill the roll. And I had to have those first five gripping grins on the rollback like immediately. And I would always just take them on a half-empty camera yep. only to two days later get back blurry, 
and uh, cut off fish. Well, I mean, you you had that's, to. That's what I remember. You had to because if you kept that one around, like that disposable camera was going to get a drop of water at some point, and then the whole roll was shot. Dude, please, you're going to make me have to go back to therapy because the biggest weak fish I ever caught I had on a disposable point and shoot camera. I mean, massive. I should have mounted it. I should. It was. It was. It was massive. And like two days later, I went trout fishing and it rolled out of my fishing vest into the mm-hmm. water. And that was the yeah, end of that. Yeah. I, I mean. Done. The fish was delicious, oh, but I don't have a photo of it. I mean, it, so. your, your memory is probably better because like to be, to be honest, I don't have any stories like that. I don't have any f- of my own fish pictures that really stick out for me, but I do have entire hard drives of other people's fish photos from all my years of guiding, right? Because I was just taking pictures of other people's fish and sending them to them. And the weird thing, and this is true, I can look back on those photos, and, and some of them are well over a decade old, and I can remember the exact details of those fish. Like, the hole where oh, we yeah. caught them, the weather that day, what they ate. But I cannot tell you a damn thing about any of the people holding those fish. Like, I could pass <laughs> those people on the street and have no <laughs> idea who they are. I don't know their names. I don't know where they're from. I don't know anything about them. But I remember those fish. I remember the stories of their fish. Well, yeah. And, I, you know, I, I see I'm a people person. But I give you a pass on that because you were a guide. That was work. I mean, it was just like new people every single day, day after day, which I think like gives you a pass on not remembering exactly who caught no. what. So, I mean, that makes sense to me. Big fish are memorable for you people, not so much. <laughs> but in the case I'm about to explain, I actually do remember the fish and the angler. And four nights ago, and almost 40 years ago, September 21st, 1982, Albert McReynolds caught a world record striper in my home state of New Jersey. And here in my office, check this out, right? I have one of the original photos of Al and that massive bass hanging at a local marina. Hmm. And it's it's not a print that somebody made later, okay? It's not a copy. It is one of the originals developed from the film that was in the camera that No morning. way, really? Yeah, dude. It's 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 awesome. And it's a it's a long twisted story about how I got yeah. that photo, okay, that I'll save for another time. But right now, since we're almost out of time, here comes our end of the line segment. A tribute, if you will, to McReynolds, a classic lore and his legendary catch. Fishy, 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 fishy. Well, it's not loud enough, Bert. This week. In honor of the recent passing of one of surf fishing's greatest legends and most debated anglers, I am calling out a very specific lure, all right? The Rebel Minnow, saltwater version, five-and-a-half-inch model, black back over silver. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with the smaller sweetwater version of this classic, right? It's been a staple in the bass, pike, and trout scenes for many decades, but it's the big cousin with those three shiny stainless trebles that caught Al McReynolds, a 78.8-pound striped bass, on the night of September 21st, 1982. For 29 years, that fish stood as the all-tackle world record striper until Connecticut angler Greg Meyerson took an 81.8-pounder to the scale in 2011 and beat it, right? Now, Meyerson's fish was caught from a boat, 
McReynolds landed his from the Vermont Avenue jetty in Atlantic City, New Jersey. And it's a catch that has always been shrouded in mystery. And many people claim the conditions that night were far too rough for Al to have even been on that jetty casting. Others claim he found the fish washed up dead. Some say a commercial fisherman gave him the striper. And it has been written about over the years ad nauseum spawning pro and anti McReynolds camps within the striper scene. But the truth is, despite all the unknowns tied to that fish, the bottom line is that it was qualified by the IGFA. And the fact alone that it was caught off the beach prompts many surf casters to this very day to vow that Meyerson's boatfish is, quote, not my world record. As a young kid, I actually got to lay eyes on one of the few replicas of the McReynolds bass in existence. And I, I mean, you could fit a basketball in its gaping mouth without it touching the sides. That's no bullshit. It was far wider and taller than me, the eight-year-old, gawking at this unfathomable fish hanging in a museum in Brigantine, New Jersey. And I remember so vividly, in that cavernous bucket mouth, someone had stuck a five-and-a-half-inch rebel minnow black back over silver. And Even back then, at that young age, I remember staring at that lure and thinking, there's no way. There's there's no way in hell it caught this fish. To quote no effects, it was like feeding a tic-tac to a whale, like a hot dog in a hallway. Now, what I've never doubted is that a bass that size would eat that lure, all right? According to the legend, a school of giant stripers had mullet pinned against the rocks that fateful night, and that lure, that rebel, would have matched the size and profile of those mullet. But having fought big bass in the high 40-pound range, knowing their power, I could just never get my head around the idea that that little hollow plastic rebel lasted for what McReynolds claimed was an hour and 20-minute battle on 20-pound test mono to boot. So all of those relatively small trebles stayed glued in that thick, massive jaw for that long during a fight that McReynolds himself said made his back ache and caused his forearms to lock. It always just seems so damn unlikely. But see, that's the fun. Without these little questions, without all these little mysteries, and there there are a lot more than just the lure, tied to this catch It makes me wonder if we would even be talking about the McReynolds bass today. The debate, the mystique, the allure of the whole thing is what has kept the story in the forefront of the surf fishing and striped bass cultures. And sadly, on Sunday, May 10th, 2020, Al McReynolds passed away. And though he had fans as well as detractors, better or worse, He will live on as a legend in the striper scene, and that rebel minnow will forever be known as the lure that earned him that status. Right on. Well, you know what? A cheers to Al, because the the truly great fish are the ones that come with truly great stories, and, and that, man, that is a great story. That's it for this week. Uh, we hope you guys enjoyed the moment of Zen from River Horse. 
got smacked down by the epiphany that a gorilla pod is more critical <laughs> than your rod and reel and finally understand that when your guide says, please don't cast right now, you shouldn't freaking cast. <laughs> Listen to your guide. As always, if you like what you're hearing, have comments, suggestions, concerns, bar nominations, or just want to shoot the shit, we adore hearing from you. So hit us up at bent at com. Please, we, we read every one of them and we appreciate every one. We and do. you know what? Yes. Leave us a glowing review wherever you consume your podcast. Those really matter. Whenever you consume coffee, it should be Black <laughs> Rifle Coffee. And, man, we hope you light them up this weekend. Hey, one last note before we go. You know, Miles and I work on a lot more here at Meat Eater than just Bent. So we're asking for a little assist for a future project featuring a whole cast of Meat Eater characters far more famous than us. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That is true. And seriously, if you've ever had a near-death experience while fishing, we'd love for you to send just like a basic gist of the story to bent at themeateater.com. Okay. Now, to be clear, we're not talking about your buddy Tommy getting hooked in the calf meat with your musky bucktail, okay? No. We're talking about heavy-hitting stories that left you thankful to be alive. And we do appreciate your input. And speaking of listener emails that we love, again, a listener named William who did not provide a last name wrote in and said, we should close every show with, until next time, get bent. <laughs> and I don't know about every show, but just for you, just this week, William, until next time, get bent. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. 